This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. Could you stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word? Today we'll be reading from James 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm Pastor John. I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at Coopersville Reformed Church. And as you just read from our sister, our elder, Rachel, we'll be in James 2 this morning. So if you haven't already, you can take a pew Bible either underneath you or in front of you and underneath you there. And you can follow along. Maybe you're new here. We're grateful that you're here. Um, or maybe you've just been missing some weeks. We, we don't keep attendance, but we know who you are. No, I'm kidding. Um, but we're just grateful. So I want to catch you up a little bit on where we're at. So we're looking at the epistle, the letter of James, and it's written to uh, the Jerusalem church in which James was a leader in. Okay, James is the half-brother of Jesus, at least 
the majority of scholarship tends to lean that this was written by the half-brother of Jesus who was named James. And, and it's important to know that James was not always a follower of his older brother Jesus. He did not always believe in him as the Messiah, okay? Pre-resurrection, James did not trust in Jesus, his older brother, for the salvation of his sins, okay? He did not trust in him in that way. I mean, you may have thought that your older sibling could do no wrong. James lived it, okay? His older sibling, Jesus, literally could do no wrong, okay? So you could imagine how trusting in your older brother for the salvation of your soul could be a hard thing. Okay, so when he's going out on his public ministry tour starting at 30 years old, you're like, I saw him pick his nose, okay? Like, <laughs> I don't think he's the Messiah. Um, and Jesus met with James post-resurrection. And James had a personal experience with the resurrected Savior and his life changed. James not only went from being cynical toward Jesus in terms of him being the Messiah, he went from being cynical to all in in a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And this letter here is written primarily uh, to the Jewish people in Jerusalem because that's who was filling the church at that time. Uh, Helen and Sienna uh, occasionally like this show. It's a little odd, but every once in a while when I've come up the stairs or I'm hanging out somewhere, I'll come in and the two of them are watching this show. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've watched it yourself. It's on Netflix called Is It Cake? Some of you are giggling because you know, okay? that This show showcases skilled cake artists who create mouth-watering replicas of everyday objects like toilet paper, and then they cut it in half to show you, ta-da, it's not toilet paper, it's cake that looks like toilet paper. Um, it's a weird thing, it's a gift, I guess, and they have this game show uh, that displays it all. So I thought, why not? Let's have a game here today at church. Aren't you happy you came to church this morning? All right, so I'm going to show an image on the screen, and we're going to vote whether or not you think it's cake or is it real. Okay, so give me the first image. Um, there you go. Don't you just want to bite into that? So how many of us believe it is cake? I want to see hands. Love it. Love it. How many of us do not believe it is cake? Okay? You are correct. That's just a dirty shoe I took off Google Images. Okay? Uh, so, credit to them. All right, next one. Here we go. There's some bananas. Three. Three bananas. How many of you believe it is cake? How many of you? Hands. Okay? How many of you do not believe it is cake? Just bananas. Shoot. You guys are much better than I thought. It is not cake. It's just some bananas from Google. All right, next one. Salad. Salad, just salad. How many of you believe this is cake? How many of you do not believe it is cake? 
Okay? It is indeed cake. Uh, that is cake. And for some of us, that's the only way we're going to get our greens in. <laughs> right there. That is cake. Okay? So this is the show, Is It Cake? Shameless plug. Not my thing, really, but um, when it's your wife's thing and your daughter's thing, it is your thing. Um, and so... The point I want to make opening this sermon in conjunction with the is it cake illustration is that outward appearance is often a poor judgment of what is within a person. You see me? Outward appearance, seeing something like a thing of salad, oh, so you thought, is a poor judgment of what is often within a person. It's cake. Ta-da. And James is contending that as Christians, you are wrong to pass such judgments on a person when you see them. And in particular, he is speaking of showing partiality or favoritism due to such erroneous judgments within the church, especially as it relates to the person who appears wealthy or to, and to the person who appears poor. And there's this illustration that James gives us here at the beginning of James 2 to make his point. And this certainly seems like James is speaking directly to the Jerusalem church and directly to a problem in which they had been dealing with. Let's read James 2, 1 together. James writes, my brothers and sisters. Just want to pause right there. Who's James writing this to? He's writing it to Christians. He's writing it to the church. He's writing it to those who profess faith in Christ like James does, his brothers and his sisters. You need to understand here, if you're here and you are an investigator of the faith, you are one who says, man, I'm not a Christian yet. I'm just in, I'm checking this thing out. I'm just investigating this whole thing right now. First, I want to say, thank God you're here. We love that you're here. We hope that you feel welcomed. We hope you feel loved. We, we hope you sense there's something different, otherworldly happening here. Like the, something not of this world is happening here. These folk are a little crazy and it's interesting. It's intriguing. But you need to understand 99.5% of the time or so when I kind of get in people's grill, I, I'm not getting in your grill. I'm getting in the brothers and sisters grill. I'm getting in those who are professing believers in Jesus Christ. So sometimes when I get direct and I get up to your face, th this is who I'm speaking to. The brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to those of us here who claim Christ as king and who have claimed to give him our lives. And, G and James here is very clear in James 2.1. He says, hey, my brothers and sisters, I'm talking to y'all, believers. And I love this title. I can write this down. If you're, if you're a tattoo artist, you can tattoo this on people. Believers. In our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. If you're a believer in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, you are to not show favoritism. James couldn't be any more clear in this verse. There are some slight differences in how to translate the 
glorious Lord Jesus Christ in the original language. But the emphasis here is very clear on the glory of God being embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis that James is making in the original language. That is that Christ's splendor, Christ's majesty, Christ's supremacy is over and above all. If we are truly captivated by this, James is making a statement in this first sentence, then we will not show favoritism. If we are truly convinced that Jesus is supreme above all, glorious above all, beautiful above all, then we will not treat those created in God's image in such a way. That's the distinction James is making here in James 2.1. You see, it's a good thing to give honor, though. So, so I, don't wanna, I, I don't want us to mix it up. I don't want us to get confused. Because some of us say, well, are we not supposed then to give honor to those? So, so let me give you an example. You see someone walking with a Vietnam War hat. Okay? You see someone walking with a Vietnam War hat. It is good for you to shake their hand and to say thank you for your service. Or let's just, or you see them at a restaurant, it is good for you to say, I feel led to pay their bill. It's a good thing. Or let me give you another example. President of the United States or former presidents of the United States, someone just walks it, says, man, I, I, was just, I heard y'all got a great deli belly. I was just coming through um, and, and I just wanted to come here Sunday morning and heard this traditional service is popping. And so I want to come in here and where's it? I don't think former presidents will use that vocabulary, but you know what I mean. Uh, and, and they come in here. It would be right for us to show them honor. Okay. So James here is not saying never show honor to someone who might be prestigious or in such a position. But he is saying, you show honor to all people, irregardless of their socioeconomical status or irregardless of what they can give you, how they can pay you back. It seems the church in James' day was giving honor where honor was not due. Though, they were prejudging or having prejudice against those who were poor. I love what my brother David Platt says in his commentary, and I paraphrased it. He says, when our eyes are focused not on outward appearance, but on the supremacy of Christ, the splendor of Christ, the beauty of Christ, when that is our focus, he says, you will honor Christ and you will rightfully honor all people when you realize that Christ is supreme. The word favoritism in Greek is literally without respect to face. Without respect to face or showing favoritism with respect to facial or physical outside characteristics. Essentially, the sin of partiality is categorized, is categorizing people based on things in ways that God does not categorize people in. Okay? And I... Again, another great teacher, Tony Evans, he says this, it's a type of value judgment based on unbiblical criteria. When you make poor judgments based on unbiblical criteria, this is the type of judgment James is pointing to that was happening within the church. 
And the illustration that James provides us is pointed directly at his church. He supposes a story of two men coming into the church, one stunting with some bling bling on, on the fingers, maybe some Louis Vuitton clothes in our day, and maybe he's got some organic alligator shoes on, okay? And then another person who's coming in in rags, something that was purchased at the Goodwill, which by the way, I'm not at all opposed to. A lot of those clothes at the Goodwill have stickers and tags still on them. I think it's a wise place to shop. In this illustration, the supposed rich man was treated with honor while the supposed poor man was not. And you might hear that and you might think, Pastor John, our church don't do that. Our church doesn't do that. We're, this is not the kind of people we are. But I know of a church you might be thinking that right now. I know of a church. They need, you to, they need you to preach there and hear this message from James 2, not us. And so before you flip the page on this sermon and already get to uh, faith without works is dead, because I know you're already thinking next week, you know, we don't really need this. We're doing, we, we got this covered. Um, not so fast. I want us to think of ways that we can and maybe often do prejudge other people within the church and outside the church. First example, have you ever assumed the person panhandling in the streets is just lazy? You ever just assume like, and they're just lazy or they're an addicts, they must be an addict probably need that money so they can get their next fix. You just all automatically prejudge them and just given that designation towards them. Or have you ever seen a rich person and, and you, you, just, you just assume they have inherited all their wealth from previous generations, that they're trust fund kids, you just, you've given them that judgment that they must not have worked hard for it. Dave Ramsey would say over 90% of millionaires actually are millionaires not based on inherited wealth, but based on the work that they themselves have done. Or you can look at someone who sends their kids to Christian schooling or they choose to homeschool and you can think, oh, those poor kids, their parents must be sheltering them. How dare them? Or you can look at someone who sends their kids to public school and you can think they are just feeding their kids to the hand of Satan. How could they do that? I read an article of what's in the first grade textbooks. It was on the internet. It must be true. Or on the other hand, you can look at someone who's, um, who's a person of color. And you can immediately think political affiliation, where they stand on certain issues, and that everything, they, they must make everything about race. I bet they make everything about race. And you can prejudge them. And you might have no idea. 
Last one, you, you might look at someone who doesn't seem to move a fiber of their being in worship. And you may think they're spiritually dead. They just stand there. I don't even know if they're singing. They look like they're mouthing the words. Or you may look at someone who occasionally, yes, even in our traditional service, does this. And you may think, they're just here for the emotional experience. There's no spiritual depth within them. Now, am I hitting on any prejudices that could be within the hearts in this room? All of these things and so much more, I believe are at the heart of the disease of prejudice that James is alluding to here in James chapter two. And we must all be careful of these. We must all be careful of these. So for the rest of our time, let us look at the reasons James gives for why this is so evil and this is so wrong. Listen to these reasons. Let's read James 2, 5 through 7 again. He says, listen, again, again, listen. You like that one meme? Listen, listen. Um, of the little kid, maybe you haven't seen it. Okay, that didn't hit. Um, My dear brothers and sisters, listen. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of, the, of him to whom you belong? point here is physical riches rarely reflect spiritual richness. Physical riches rarely reflect spiritual richness. Don't you know that our Lord chose to be born to a poor woman in an obscure town in the backwoods of Nazareth? Don't you know that when Jesus was 30 plus years old, he was walking and he said, foxes, have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head at night? Remember in John 1, the question posed against Jesus was, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? And when he launched his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth, he took up the scroll of Isaiah and he read these inaugural words. Listen to them clearly, church. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me as he launched his ministry because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners in the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's found in Luke 4, and he's quoting Isaiah 61. 
Then sometime later, he preaches the best sermon ever preached entitled the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew's depiction of it, if you're a speaker, if you're a preacher, you know this, just getting the plane up in a sermon can be a difficult one. And his opening words in this sermon, according to Matthew, in Matthew 5, 3, are blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke's version, before you try to interpret that and say, well, I don't think he was talking to the poor. Luke's version, the physician who studied what Jesus was teaching and met with eyewitnesses, Luke's version is found in Luke 6.20. He simply says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And the flip side of that verse is four verses later in verse 24, he says, but woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Like he is putting the knife in and flipping it upside down. I mean, daggers. The truth is the materially poor are so much more likely to truly realize their spiritual need and to entrust themselves to the grace of God the truth. It's the reality. Why? Because riches, especially in our day, can be such a false comfort for us. I know they can for me. And here's the sub point to the point I want to make. The ground is level for all people at the foot of the cross. The ground is level for all people at the foot of the cross. Jesus had a way of truly seeing everyone for who they really are. You could not impress Jesus by what you wore and you could not defile him or upset him by what you wore. Remember Mark 12, in observing People perform acts of worship in the temple. Jesus watched the Jerusalem elite parade in the temple as they offered their offerings. And he was not impressed. But then he saw something that made his heart leap, made his heart jump. A poor widow. Remember James talking about widows last week, end of James 1? This is, by the way, James 2. And you need to understand that the chapter breakdowns are not by the Spirit of God, maybe. You know, there were some great men who were involved in breaking down the chapters later on after the writings and after the letters were written. But James didn't break down those chapters inspired by the Spirit of God. Okay, so sometimes we get them wrong, I think. To me, this is an absolute continuation of what true religion looks like, and he's calling out what it doesn't look like now. And he's calling them straight to their face. Okay, so back to Mark 12. He sees this widow, and she puts in a fraction of a penny into the offering plate. And Jesus' heart erupts with a standing ovation. 
She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be known. She just did it. And she gave out of her means. She gave out of her living. That day, Jesus had seen little to impress him, but when that widow passed by, though he remained seated, he was inwardly giving her a standing ovation, one commentary says. The point is, physical riches rarely reflect spiritual richness, and at the foot of the cross, we are all on an equal playing field. And you may be here today, and you may say, well, John, that's kind of scary. Because a lot of us are rich, me included, in terms of world standards. And the reality is, yeah, that is kind of scary. The disciples said the same thing when the rich young ruler left upset when Jesus said, go sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. And he left upset. Why? Because Jesus wants everyone to sell all their possessions and to be poor? Absolutely not. But because Jesus was pointing to idolatry in the rich man, rich young ruler's heart that was holding him back from going all in with God. And maybe God's doing the same to us. Is this a false comfort that we need to deal with, that we need to wrestle with? And I had to wrestle with this. So I, personal experience, I can share this in this service. I can't share it in the next service. I was driving to pick up my mother a couple Fridays ago. She'd been with us for over two weeks. So it was probably three Fridays ago. I was driving to pick her up. And she had told me that she wants me to take her car and to leave my car there uh, because she needs miles on her car. She doesn't drive a lot now and now she's retired and so oh, I said oh mom I mean I already have to fold into my Camry now I got to fold into your Toyota CHR and it's smaller even than my Camry and I'm like oh I'm like okay okay all right mom honor your mother yes honor, yes, yes mom I'll do it and um, she said well you're gonna have to leave your car here now note I drive a 2016 Toyota Camry with over 140,000 miles on it. Bunch of dings and dents. Always the other person's fault. Um, <laughs> namely my wife who backed up into me once. Um, we won't go there. Again, I can't share this next service. Um, and I said to her, I called her, I was two hours away. I said to her, mom, I, that's fine. I think I'm just going to look, though, somewhere else to park my car, though, in the area. Um, because the neighborhood, by the way, that I grew up in, has gotten a little worse from my judgment. And I'm a little like, concerned to keep my car there, like, no offense, for the next, like, 16 days. And she was like, really? Like, what has gotten into you? Like, this is your home area. And so, like, as I'm studying this text, I'm like, here I am. Making 
pre- now some of you could say you're being a good steward of your property and you're just being careful of it because the area that I grew up in is not a great area. It's very low, low income area and um, certainly could be a result of some vandalism or whatever. But in my heart, I'm going to be real with you as I'm studying this text this, way, this week. God's bringing that back to my heart to share. Maybe there's some of that in you, John. Maybe there's some of this in you as well that you need to check. Let's continue, James 2, 8 and 9. He continues, says, if you really keep the royal law found in scriptures, it's the great commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second of the greatest commandments, Jesus said. And you are, you are doing right, he says. If you, if you keep the royal law, if you really keep it according to the NIV, which I love that. Verse nine, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Second subpoint here is combating favoritism is the essence of the great commandment. Combating favoritism is the essence of the great commandment. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, which is the most important commandment? You remember that? And he had answered, first, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, you can sum up all of the 613 laws that are found in the Torah into those two laws. Love God, love people. Love God with everything you have, love people as yourself. Essentially, congratulations, you can keep every other law. You can tithe your mint and dill, okay? You can tithe and give 10%, but if you give 10% and you won't love your neighbor, what good is it? What good is it? Essentially, These are at the heart of everything. Essentially, James is reminding Christians, you can't claim to keep God's laws and then break the royal one repeatedly. You can't do that. What good is being pro-life if we constantly murder people with our words? The point is, if we refuse to follow Christ at the apex and the heart of the law, then we ourselves are walking contradictions. Walking contradictions. The point is looking down on someone for any superficial reason or treating them with any less respect or honor because of something they are or are not, rather, potentially, is a royal sin. And it's a breaking of the royal law. James would say. Can I tell you one thing that I love about this church? I love that I'm not related to any of y'all. That sounded bad. That sounded horrible. I thought thought it'd be better than that. Um, Okay. 
it would be an honor. Let, let me back up a little bit. It would be an honor to be related to most of you. Um, but I, okay, uh, I'm, I'm kidding. I love you guys. Obviously, I love you. But I appreciate that I am not related to anyone here because I don't want any preferential treatment. You get enough already as a pastor. I don't want any more special preferential treatment. And I don't want to be tempted to give any either. I don't. I lo- have I said I love you? I love you, okay? It'd be an honor to be related to you guys. But I'm not. And I'm actually not Dutch. My last name actually isn't Van Heinsma. It's just Heinz. It's been a front the whole time. Okay, here's an addition. Idea to the proposed building project. What if, connected to this point, what if we painted the doors red coming into the church? Let's paint the doors red. Sanctuary. To symbolize the blood of Jesus. It could be a representation that we don't bring our appearance here. We don't bring our accomplishments here. We don't bring our family connections here. We don't bring our worldly riches in here. We all come to God on one merit, church. The blood of the Lamb. That's the merit we sit in here today. If you are here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So let us paint the doors of our sanctuary red. Who's excited about that? Some of y'all are amped I'm shocked. I expected it in contemporary service, but I expect it here. I'm kidding. That will not be voted on in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be very clear here. All right, I've not cleared it with the elders, and I don't know if we're going to do it. But you can check out, uh, again, as Rachel alluded to, our recorded family meeting at coopersvillereform.com, simply clicking on events, and you can check out that family meeting there, shameless pluck. Um, But this is the merit that we come in here and we sit and we stand and we sing through today. It's the merit of the blood of the Lamb. Like all the family connections you bring in here are awesome. I want generations of your families to be worshipers here. Okay? All the status that you bring in here, whether how high or how low, awesome. I want God to continue to bless you and give you raises and, and, and help you in your job and positions that you hold. But all of that, when you step into this church, we're all on the same playing field. We're all in need of the mercy of God. We're all just sinners begging for God's mercy and receiving it lavished upon us by the blood of the Lamb. Every one of us. Let's conclude with James cutting to the heart again. James 2, 12 and 13. It says, speak and act. Love that. Words often come first. 
Again, we'll talk more about that later in the series. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's scary. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Last point this morning is disregard for the poor displays ignorance of the gospel. Disregard for the poor displays ignorance of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you have put all of your hope for eternal life in God's mercy, all of it. Embracing the gospel means embracing that there is nothing about your worthiness that earns God's, that earns God's favor. He gives it to you freely, although you and I deserve absolutely none of it but he gives it freely and he lavishes it upon us on the merit of Jesus Christ. Do you remember a couple of months ago I was sharing um, bad country song, or country songs with bad theology? And I was kind of just having like a moment of just, again, I, I like to share just things that I've just noticed in my own life and just be an open book as much as possible. Um, to y'all, I was sharing about some country th songs from Bad Theology, and I encouraged us to fast from them. I want you to know I did. Fasted for about eight weeks. And just this last Friday, just this past Friday, I got on my Cub Cadet lawnmower. I was excited to mow, and so I got the weed whacker out. I call it a weed whacker. I don't know, a weed eater. Maybe it's an Illinois thing. Um, and so I got the weed whacker out. And I said, what do I want to listen to? Sometimes I listen to sermons, sometimes I listen. I said, you know what, it's been about eight weeks. I'm going to throw on some country tunes. All right? I'm going to throw on some. So I go to my country playlist, click, and about nine songs in. And Spotify, it's like through AI, artificial intelligence, like just changes it up sometimes. And so like eight songs in, I hear this song from Reba McIntyre and Lauren Daigle. It's their hit song, Back to God. Y'all may know it. It is, this is just my opinion, it is 99.5% phenomenal. But there's this part of the chorus that displays an ignorance of the gospel, in my opinion. Just my opinion. But I'm going to show, show you here. The hook goes like this. I was going to do a thing, but then I said, why would I play something I don't necessarily agree with all of it? And so she, she says this, and it's Reba on the hook. Yeah, Reba, great. She, you got to get down on your knees, believe, fold your hands and beg and plead, got to keep on praying. You got to cry, rain tears of pain, pound the floor and scream his name. All of that. I'm like, Reba, girl, go, girl, love this. And then it's this last little bit of a line. She goes, because we're still worth saving. Because we're still worth saving. And I know on the surface, this is a small thing, but underneath, I think it has great gospel significance. Because if she's just talking as a humanitarian, that we're still, we're saving, save the earth, save the people, help the, all that, then yes, amen, as a humanitarian. But if this, and I believe it does have gospel significance, if this is a gospel claim, it's just not right. It's just wrong. Because... If we approach God as if we are good inherently and we're just worthy of salvation, then what Jesus did was just expected. 
What do I mean? Look at Romans 5, 6 through 11. Words are on the screen. Here's what Paul says in Romans 5, 6 through 11. And I think it goes directly to the hook of this song, to the chorus of this song. You see, he says, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What about the people who were worth saving? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, I would say the good persons are the people who are worth saving, right? Here's what Paul says, inspired by the Spirit of God. Someone might possibly dare to die for the good person. But he says this, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, since we have now been justified by his blood, paint the doors red, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, I thought we were just people we're saving. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been now reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I'm sorry, Reba and Lauren Daigle. You guys make some great songs. But why is this important? And why do I believe God allowed those words to stick to me just two nights ago? Because when you and I understand that there was nothing to the table that we contributed in our salvation. And that while we were still enemies of God, deserving of his wrath, and we could never repay him, he still chose to die for us. I believe it is then when the most genuine response, when you receive that, I believe it is then, and man, I could almost say only then, but I believe it is then when the most genuine response towards the poor from God's people can be displayed in its fullness because you and I have freely received what God has given us when we did not deserve it. And because we have freely received it, we can freely give it to others. Not on merit, but on grace, being fully dependent of God's mercy. So James essentially is giving us a good indicator light on whether or not we truly have received and understand the gospel. It's shown, church, it is shown in your generosity of spirit toward the people around you. Do you freely welcome those who are different than you? Will you sit down and have coffee with the person who may vote differently than you? Do you freely love the poor and those who may not be as privileged as you in me? Do you freely care for the needs of those around you, not expecting a return on your investment? Do we? These are striking words to all of us that should strike us deep within our spirits. You belong here. Because that is the greatest assurance that you have truly received what Christ freely gives. 
And I want us, church, as much as possible to rest in that assurance. I want us to continue building culture here where the poorest among us would feel honored and welcomed right along with the wealthiest among us. Right along with the wealthiest among us. So when we put up these words and we show them fairly often in this church, you belong here. And when people like Rachel and Heather and so many others who do such a great job of hosting and providing our welcome and scripture reading and offering up prayers, when we share these things, like you belong here, the seat that you sit in, God ordained you to sit in it. I want us truly to mean it. I want us to live like we actually mean it. And again, please hear me, church. I think you do such a great job at this. You do such a phenomenal job at this. But let's continue. Let's continue to grow together as we seek to display the supremacy of Christ to the world around us, as we seek to display the goodness of God, the majesty of God, and the beauty of God to those who are amongst us. Would you pray with me? Father God, I love you. I thank you so much for your people. I thank you so much for your church. I thank you so much for your glorious, our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you for who he is. I thank you for who you are, Jesus, for what you have done, Jesus, for how you have poured out your blood, not because we were worthy of it, but because you so loved us. I thank you, Father, for your gift of mercy and your gift of grace that you have so beautifully displayed through your sacrifice on the cross. Now, Father, may our hearts cling to that hope and may we live in the overflow of what we have received by treating others with such honor and respect. Every person with such honor and respect. Those who you have stamped your image on. They were created in your image. Now may we live and may we love well in this life. Father, if there are any sin in our heart, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are points here that are just kind of hitting us right in the core. Father, I pray that you would just gently restore us and reveal to us how we can move and live according to your glorious gospel that we have received. God, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.